I remember when I was 14 or 15 years old, around the time when I became a Christian, I wanted to turn from sin like Christians ought to do. And so I figured that I'd write the word God on the back of my hand before I went to school. And I figured that it would be a helpful reminder to me that God was always with me, right? That instills confidence. And always watching me, providing safety and an encouragement to turn away from sin. And that day, you know, as I went to school with the word God written on the back of my hand, I saw two of my closest friends at the time, and they ripped into me. And they were relentless about their mockery. We had certainly had conversations about Christ and Christianity before, and they had mocked me then. One of them was a Buddhist friend whose family was from Burma. Randy was his name. And the other one was a Muslim friend whose family was from Pakistan. Shahab was his name. And we had had our talks once again about Christ since junior high school. And even then they mocked me. But this incident must have been like a thousand times worse. I mean, these guys were world class at mockery. So much so that some people would come into our friend group and soon enough, after being on the receiving end of such mockery, would then leave our friend group because these guys just didn't let go. Because I wrote God on the back of my hand, I then became the target of their mockery. And they told me how stupid I was. They criticized my Christ. They criticized my Christianity. Praise God, though I persevered over the years and shared the gospel with them, brought them to church, even prayed with them. That day and then that week was nevertheless a quite a, quite a tiring moment. And do you know what was my safe harbor? My place of rest, my place of solace. It was in fact my church. It was in fact in those church services every Sunday, in those Bible studies every Wednesday with my guys' small group, and then in the youth group every Friday night. My safe harbor was the church and in all of the relationships that were inside. And there I found encouragement and Christian brotherly love. Definitely not perfect as my own was not, but nevertheless it was present. And every week as a Christian, I would go into the world and every week we would come back to the church for refueling, for repair, and then to stock up on supplies, so to speak, ready to once again head back out into the world to face whatever it is that was in the world for the sake of Jesus, even mockery. Well, friends, in today's passage, we have the simple yet profound encouragement to be Christ-loving people in here, given the difficulty found out there. That's the main idea that we focus on today, to be Christ-loving people in here, given the difficulty found out there that is in the world. And we see this from our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 1. I invite you to turn there with me now. We are in verses 22 to 25. We finish up the chapter here. So I invite you to turn there with me now. Let me give you some background as you turn there. First Peter, as we talked about before, was written by Peter the Apostle, one of the disciples of Jesus. And he writes to, to Christians scattered in various cities known today in the country of Turkey. Local persecution was common throughout the empire. And even though it would get worse under official state-sponsored persecution under Nero in AD 64. Still, even though this letter was written a couple years before that, local persecution was still present. Christians were still suffering. In chapter 1, verse 6, go ahead and look there. We read that they were grieved by various trials. 
In chapter 2, verses 20 to 21, you see there that some were being beaten for the faith as they were suffering unjustly. In chapter 4, verse 4, some were being slandered, we read. Some were being mocked and shamed for refusing to join in with the world and their immorality. Can you imagine, imagine that? Being slandered for doing good, which is actually what we see going on today. And you might be on the receiving end of such slander and such mockery for seeking simply to do good on behalf of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, it is into that suffering that Peter writes, reminding the Christians of the very real hope they have in Jesus, and then encouraging them to persevere as God's people on earth, displaying His glory to the ends of the world. Always, no matter what, doing good. Now, later on in the letter, Peter's going to address how Christians ought to interact with the world, even their own persecutors, doing good to them, seeking their salvation. But here in our passage, he helps us focus our eyes within, that is, in our relationships in the church. And he encourages us to, calls us to be Christ-loving people in here, once again, given the difficulty out there. And that is, again, our big idea for today. Go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll go ahead and read 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever." And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Point number one, if you're taking notes, also up there on the screens. Point number one, the call to love. Point number one, the call to love. And I do encourage you to take notes. You can discuss your notes and what you found interesting as you guys hang out later on after the service. You look there at 22. I'll go ahead and read that again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love... Here's the call. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. So first, let's just stop here and try and understand what's going on. There is logic in the passage. There is meaning in the text itself. So we want to understand the passage. You have, uh, in terms of the flow, you have the imperative or the command, simply love one another And then what comes before and after the command are simple reasons for why they ought to love. It's because they have been saved or converted. It's because they know the love of God in Christ. They've experienced salvation. So simple. Since you've been converted, since you've been saved, love the brothers. Let's address Christian love in general. Scripture is clear that those who know the Father's love in Christ go on to love what He loves and love like He loves. For example, God is the definition of holiness, right? God is the definition of purity, of righteousness. As we mentioned before, He is those very things. And we see in His character how this gets manifested in terms of all His ways, all His laws, all His thoughts, and all His loves, right? He himself is these things, and the way in which he goes about doing what he does, he evidences all that he is, that is purity, righteousness, love, holiness. And so he loves all that which is holy, all that which is pure, all that which is righteous. And so he acts in accordance with his loves, just as we do. 
So the Christian, you Christian, being born again by the Spirit and the Word, we have His Holy Spirit, and so therefore we too begin to love the way in which He loves. And we also love the things that He loves. And even as our character begins to change, even some of us ever so slowly, which sometimes happens given our sin, we though begin to act in accordance with new godly loves and desires. The Holy Spirit working in us that we might love all that which is godly. As we grow in loving God and His character, we begin to shun immorality that we used to love. We begin to turn from sin as we turn more to Him. As we grow in knowing God and his, all of His glory, for example, we begin to want less the glory of our own name. We begin to want to live for the glory of His name because He is all-glorious. Yeah, right, God loves holiness. He right, loves His own glory. He loves His own righteousness. He is those things. Those things are the standard. But God also loves His people. Just as God is holy, so think about us Christians, so we begin to love where His holiness can be found, as Christians in past centuries have emphasized. Where His Spirit is, that is in His people, right? It's producing holiness. We begin to be drawn to it. We want to fan it into flame where we see embers. We want to see the raging fire of holiness and love and compassion. Those things that are Christ. Those things that Christ does just as we grow in grace and peace in the gospel. So we begin to seek the same in our brothers and sisters in Jesus that they too would grow in such grace and peace. We begin to want to seek their safety and security in the Savior, the same safety and security that we know in Jesus. As we grow in maturity, we want to see other people grow in the same. Of course, this still requires effort to think and to act accordingly. But nevertheless, such brotherly love is foundational to those in the household of God. So turn over to 1 John. Turn over to 1 John in your Bibles. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Just turn to your right in the Bible. You see how foundational this Christian love is. 4 7, 4 7, 1 John 4 7. He says there, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. If you guys are looking for love, looking for boyfriend, girlfriend, that's where you think love is, or even in a child or something like that. He says, look no further. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born. Past tense, been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, does not love, does not know God because God is love. He is also, by the way, a consuming fire. He is, you know, the Bible uses a lot of different descriptions for him. But here, John says God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that is the wrath-bearing sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John even goes further, giving us a test. You want to know a test as to whether or not you are a Christian? Listen to this. By this it is evident who are the children of God. This is 1 John 3.10. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3.14. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
test to see, one of the tests to see if you're a Christian is if you have any love for the brother. And this actually makes natural sense. Friends, if you genuinely love God, then we are going to say that we love what he loves. And no doubt he loves his people. It is as natural as, let's just say, I'm dead. That's going to happen someday, right? And let's say Melanie outlives me. If she's going to get married, remarried, which is a totally fine and good thing to do. I would want my wife to have another husband and my children to have another father if I'm gone. That guy better say, along with I love you, he better say, I'm also going to love your children. What kind of guy? What would we think of the guy who says, I love you, I'm just going to pass on your kids? doesn't make sense. No doubt God loves his people. So to say, I love Jesus, but not his church, makes no sense. Wasn't it for his people's salvation that Christ left his throne of glory and transversed, traversed the universe? Wasn't it for his people that Christ took on flesh in humility? Wasn't it for his people that he went and suffered and died bearing the wrath that they deserved so that they would know pardon? And wasn't it for his people, wasn't it for their freedom that he defeated sin, death, and Satan and got up from the dead? And wasn't it for his people's security that Christ now lives to intercede before the Father? How could anybody say, I love Jesus. I have fellowship with him where his loves become my loves and his purposes are my purposes. His thoughts are my thoughts. I love you, Jesus. I'll take your love, but I'm going to pass on your people. No doubt we can all grow in our love for the church, but for, for the Christian, loving others, right? Based on everything we just looked at in the local church is simply Christianity 101. It's a fundamental reality for the Christian. And not just because we are commanded to love, though we certainly are and need to take that seriously, but because that's what we have been saved for. This brings us to point number two. We have been saved for brotherly love, our passage says. And here's point number two. We have the ground of love. The ground of love. Point number two. Ground just means reason. That's helpful for you guys to store in your mind. Ground simply means reason. We see this in 22. Peter says what we have been saved for is for brotherly love. The root weird here, brotherly love, comes from one word in the Greek, which comes from Philadelphia, love of the brothers. Now, there are many reasons why we have been saved, but here Peter leans into encouraging the church to be the loving people of God, given the difficulty out there. He leans into the fact that Christians have been saved for brotherly love, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's what he says. Love one another earnestly. So there you see the ground of love, the reason why we are to love. The call to love is grounded in the fact that they have been saved by their loving God in Jesus Christ. Peter describes here conversion as the ground. Conversion is described in two different ways. The first way, we have the language of ceremonial purification, cleansing, is language that comes from the Old Testament ceremonial worship of God, which Peter also continues into chapter 2. They are uh, a living house built up, priests, things like that. Peter draws from the Old Testament and he uses, it, uses this language to describe the New Testament church, right? He's already done this. He's called the New Testament church exiles, just as Israel was exiles, just as they were exiles. They didn't have a home. They wandered from place to place. So Christians are spiritual exiles going from this home to the next. As we continue to think about this 
purification ceremonial language. Just as God claimed Israel to be holy as he is holy, set apart for his use, consecrated. So the church has been purified wholly unto God's use since we have been ransomed by the blood of Christ, he says earlier. Now when you read there, having purified your souls by your obedience to uh, the faith, don't think that we are saved by works. That's not what he's getting at. That would go against Peter's teaching on grace, as in it's God's grace that elects people, God's grace in causing them to be born again. It's God's grace and he preserves us for a final salvation. It's God's grace that gives us an eternal inheritance in Christ. He's not saying that we're saved by works. He's still upholding salvation by grace. But when he says purified, he's talking about ceremonial cleansing. But then he says obedience to the truth. What is that if it's not works? Well, he's speaking about conver- conversion from a human point of view. Romans 1.5, you can write this down. Romans 1.5, he says there, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Similar language there, obedience of faith. In our passage, he uses the phrase obedience to the truth. That is the truth of the gospel. Paul's using that there, or faith could be described as to uh, the contents of the gospel. So with this obedience language, what is being contrasted are those who believe and obey, believe Jesus and obey his word. And then in 2.8, you look there, those who reject Christ and disobey the word. That's what's being contrasted. Those who obey in the church versus those who disobey, that is those who are outside and who reject Jesus. The second way he describes conversion is in this language of being born again or born anew. We are born again, look there, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This language he has used before of being born again in 1.3. Christians have been born again or born anew by the seed of the Father. Imagine Christians, right? We're navigating life in the world. We are in the world, not of the world. We are of the Father. We are born of the seed that is his word. Through regeneration in the spirit, he gives us the new birth. First John 1 John 1.18, sorry, James 1.18 says this, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You really do get this idea of the seed or being born by the seed of the family, children and the father. And so we walk like the father, we live like the father, we love like the father, and we are to, of course, love one another, the father's other children in Christ. So summary, what's the command here? So love one another. What's the reason you have been saved? You've been converted by the grace of God. And so given the difficulty out there, we need to be loving God's loving people in here, Christ's loving people in here. It's important that God called, has called us to love and given the context of our exile, right? Given the difficulty out there. You see why it's all the more important for you all, we all, to be Christ's loving people in here? as we really seek to provide safe harbor for Christians who return back to the gathering week in and week out. We are to be a safe harbor in here so that Christians come back for repair, for safety, to stock up on supplies after having gone out on their dangerous voyage. In our lives, we are, think about our mission, we are sent into the world to do good for Christ. And we got wonderful opportunities, right, to meet all sorts of nice people, cool people, and love them in Christ. But we also meet some who are simply not so nice. But yet we are still called to love them in Jesus. But it can be wearying. I mean, Christian, do you guys know this weariness? 
I told you the story about me being ridiculed for wanting to remember God is with me at all times. This was a little tiring at times. I was, I was also, I've also had a gun pointed at my forehead for evangelizing, and that was also a little wearying there in that moment. But think too about this, and I tell you these examples maybe because you might identify. Imagine the Christian whose boss, this is a real story, a pretty powerful man in Los Angeles, asked him to do some shady things at work. Following orders meant climbing the chain of command. It meant promotions and prestige. It certainly meant more money. But as he stood for righteousness as a Christian, he knew he couldn't do what his boss wanted him to do. And his career was stalled for decades. All the way to retirement. I remember when he recounted the situation to me, there wasn't a doubt in his mind a moment of regret as he said it wasn't worth it to do their bidding. Though he knew standing for Christ was worth it, it was still nevertheless discouraging to him that he suffered unjustly and for doing good. Or take my friend who became a Christian. He turned away from drunkenness, seeing so clearly that that was not honoring to God. He cannot think rightly and think in the Spirit loving other people and loving God in those moments. He also knew that drunkenness clearly led to other sin that got him in all sorts of trouble, messed up his relationship with his wife, messed up his relationship with his children. But you know what? When he would go to these family parties, he was criticized for not drinking and not getting drunk by his extended family. You would figure that of all people, it would be his family that would want him to have a strong marriage, that his family would want him to be a faithful husband, that his family would want him to be a faithful, loving father and not go to jail anymore. But instead, no, they criticized him for following Jesus and for his sobriety in Christ. Take Christians who are in Afghanistan, who stood for Jesus even in the face of torture, threats of murder, threats of bombs at the hands of the Taliban. The young adults in this last week, we listened to a podcast called Escape from Kabul. Write that down, Escape from Kabul. It's an hour long, and it tells the story of Afghan Christians who were promised freedom if they would just recant, and freedom meant no torture. Freedom meant no more thoughts about the Taliban taking their wives and children. Imagine the temptation to want to recant, to secure earthly safety, temporary though it may be. It wasn't easy, but yet, by God's grace, they stood firm. You can listen to that, and then you can discuss it. Talk about how it encouraged you. I encourage you to do that. That was a real story. Well, friends, think about it, too, as we are on mission for Jesus Christ, as we go out into the world. Think of this, the simple, real battle that you and me face as we wrestle with our own sin in the world. That can be wearying. I have a friend who looks at the world around him. He sees what they do in the supposed freedom of no law. They can go and sleep with whoever they want to. They can create their own morality. They can create their own law because they certainly aren't going to submit to Jesus. And as a Christian, he struggles to believe that Jesus and His reign of grace is better. He fights to believe that life in Christ is better Better than the mirage of freedom without commitments. He fights to believe that morality in Christ and Christ Himself is better than 
immorality. Friends, you realize this, this weariness? You, you experience it yourself. Every week, every day, we voyage out into the world battling against our own sin, navigating the world, the flesh, and the devil. And where is it by His determination that God has intended you to find rest and solace? It's in the church. Think about what's going on now. God has determined that when the church gathers on the Lord's day, His day, we are to be reminded of God's zealous love for us in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. We are reminded of God's great love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ nevertheless died for us. Every week we are reminded that God pursues sinners in compassion and mercy. Jesus comes to our aid. Every week we hear how Christ in His humility took on flesh and in His purity and righteousness lived the life that we could not fulfilling the law of righteousness for unrighteous sinners. Every week we're reminded of a selfless sacrifice as he willingly, Hebrews says, joyfully endured the cross, suffering and dying for us as our substitute, bearing the wrath that we deserved so that we would taste the Father's love, reconciliation with God our Maker, forgiveness full and free, And so we would know the joy in our Savior. Every week we are called to turn from our sin and to know again more forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Every week we are reminded that Christ is better than sin. And today we are reminded of God's command to love the brothers. If you're visiting with us and you're exploring Christianity, glad that you can be here with us. This is why we come to church Christians don't come to church because there's nothing else we can do on Sundays. There's a whole lot of things we could do on Sundays. Nor is it the reason, nor do we come to church because it is just what we do. It's just tradition. But the Christian, wholly dependent on God's sovereign power to work through His Word and the Spirit to comfort and uplift, we come here because the church gathered is the weekly spiritual CPR breath and compression that gets us to the next week keeps us going until the end. In the church, we are reminded of all that Christ has won for us in His death and in His resurrection. Forgiveness again, reconciliation with God, and these blessings, eternal life, knowledge of the Father, knowledge of your very own Maker. These all can be yours. God says, if you turn from your sin and believe, He promises in His faithfulness, you will be saved. Praise God to everyone, no matter who they are. When the church gathers, we are spiritually repaired, we are refueled, we are resupplied, and we are reminded that Christ is our only hope. But then not only is the church to gather, the church by God's design is to scatter as well. It's not like our relationships stop right after service. During the week as well, we're to seize the opportunities to see to it that our brothers and sisters here in this church are safe and secure in the promises of Jesus. Church, you, you see here that we are the community of God, an earthly embassy of God's heavenly kingdom, representing God in all of His love in Jesus Christ so that everybody here on earth would see it. Imagine if all of us had the mindset where we all sought, right, the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ and earnestly so. That's what he says there, verse 122. Did you notice there how Peter describes how we are to love one another? He says earnestly that is fervently, that is perseveringly. Christian, just stop for a moment and think of your love. Think of your love for the brothers and sisters right here in this church. Are you earnest 
in your love for the brothers and sisters here? How are you actively looking to provide for others in this church such that they would know more and more of the love of Jesus through you? As an extension of His very love, right? He wants the brother loved. He wants the father wants the child loved. And God sends His people their direction so that they would know more of the love of Christ. Friends, how are you seeking eagerly to provide for other people so that they would know more, taste more, know more of the security, the love, the safety, the compassion, the mercy of God in Christ? Do you eagerly use your God-given time, God-given energy, resources of possessions to minister to others? You realize that people in this church have had their blood family reject them for following Jesus. See how encouraging it would be for us as brother and sister to come along that brother or sister to be their new family in Jesus Christ? How encouraging would it be then for the Christian who has been beaten for their faith to come into the church and be ministered to by our hands, not to take life, but to provide until the end? that they would know sustenance in Christ. Of course, that might be an extreme case for many of us, but how about the Christian who's simply tired of their own sin? They realize that they fear man. They try and fit in with the world. The world keeps on rejecting them. The world says you've got to be smart enough, beautiful enough, competent enough, moral enough, have an amazing resume, have enough money, be of a certain ethnicity, then we love you. And sometimes, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we get tired chasing after the applause of the world And that's where the church comes into play. In the church, we love as Christ loves. We love because Christ first loved us. And it is Him that we have in common. And so different people of different backgrounds, struggling with different issues, come together in Jesus Christ. People of different personalities, different ethnicities, different cultures are bonded in the blood of Jesus Christ. As we seek to be a safe harbor for our brothers and sisters here in this church, right, in effort to be earnest in our love, let me encourage you guys to strategize, actively, eagerly strategize about how you can provide for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Talk with your roommates. Talk with your spouse. Get on the same page just, and determine how often you can use your resources to serve other people. And let me encourage you specifically, how can you use your apartment or your home to provide for others to have a space where you can love others as your very own family in Jesus Christ. Get on the same page there. If it's once a month, great. If it's two times a month, great. If it's two times a week, awesome. Or even if you, aren't, you are not in the place to have people over, you can still volunteer, right, and love in practical ways. You can, for example, make food and bring it over to someone's house in effort to help and love them practically so that they don't have to think about that because so much might be on their mind. Maybe they're about to lose their job for standing for Jesus which is what some one brother told me this morning might happen. I'm encouraged by the young adults. I pitched them the idea of cooking dinner and bringing it over to a pastor's house so that the pastor's family can be served and so that the young adults can be served, right, as they get to know the pastor's family. Right? The pastor's family was ministered to so they didn't have to cook, and the young adults were ministered to as they ha- had the opportunity to get to know us old folks. They got the chance to interact with families, to watch and observe how the husband loves the wife, how the wife loves the husband, how they love the children. They got to observe how the families did family devotions. 
Uh, they disciple the children and evangelize their children. They're watching. They're learning. And they, if they have eyes to see, they're being taken in and loved as their own family. And let me also encourage you, as you guys are hanging out, let me encourage you to trade testimonies. Be reminded of God's amazing grace in saving us and calling us to be His people. Let them know how, you can pr- how they can pray for you. You've got to be transparent and open. Let them Ask them how you can be praying for them. So you minister to them as they too go out into the world on mission and then in some ways return back. You have your home to minister to them. Friends, you also realize that you have the opportunity to minister to some of whom they find their homes to not be a secure place. And so even going over to your place where you minister to them in love, where you spend time with them, pray with them, read the Word together with them, get to know them. It's, it's incredibly powerful to be the family of God in this world. So given the difficulty out there, let's be Christ-loving people in here, providing for others, wanting them to know and see more of the love of Jesus. But in terms of speaking here, right, as we speak the Gospel, speak our testimonies to one another. Our passage actually gets more specific about how to love others with our words. And we love by speaking gospel truths to our church family. This brings us to point number three. Point number three, the words of love. The words of love. Point number one was the call to love. Point number two was the ground of love. Point number three here, we have the words of love. And Peter provides us with a model of what it looks like to love the brothers in word, even as they suffer. It's great to provide physical needs for the physical needs of others, but we are to go on and provide for others in the way God intends, which also includes, fundamentally includes, foundationally includes, speaking God's truth of the gospel, that they would be sustained and no greater comfort in Christ. Think about it this way, right? Some of us might think, man, if people are suffering, am I supposed to speak gospel truth or am I supposed to listen? In general, yeah, we're supposed to do both, Right? But you do definitely want to get to gospel truth. And friends, that is most foundational. Let, think about it this way. If you are babysitting, right? Let's say you're taking care of your little brothers, little sisters, or back when you we used to do that, those things. Sure, you are supposed to make sure that the house is not burning down. You're supposed to not make sure to the best of your ability that they not get injured. And if they get injured, then you slap the bandaid on them. But sometimes for whatever reason, you guys remember what it's like for your little brother, sister, the person you're caring for to be inconsolable after experiencing some sort of injury. You you guys remember what that's like? Or maybe you know what that's like to be inconsolable. In those moments, in those instances, do you know what brings greatest comfort? It is not the washing of the cut. It is not the putting on of the band-aid. In fact, those things can actually induce more fear. It is, in the fact, the relaying of the good news that dad and mom are coming home now. And you know what's going to be on their mind the rest of the day or for the rest of the movie. When are they coming home? When are they coming home? When are they coming home? Friends, you see that when we use our words to point our siblings to God and all that He is in His character and all that He has promised and all that He will do based on His track record, we bring the greatest comfort to the child who knows and loves the Father. And so we are conduits of this grace as we take what we know of God and relay it to other people. Take what we know of God. Dad loves us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And He is coming back. That 
is something that we can hope in. Dad and mom are ultimate comfort. And so we end up saying as Christians, you remember what the Father said? Are you fearful of those out there? Do you remember when God showed up against the Egyptians? If you're battling with your own sin, maybe you feel like you are wandering in the desert, sinning just as Israel did. Do you remember that even though we, they turned, who showed up to deliver? Who rained on the rebellious people bread from heaven, quail from heaven? Who brought them safely to the promised land even though it was they who rebelled? Even though they were the ones who, according to the Bible, played the whore, turning away, whoring themselves after the nations and sliding into idolatry. Who was it that said, and I will atone for your sin nevertheless? Who is it that even when there seems to be no hope, promised out of his own goodness and love to deliver and showed up in Jesus Christ. If you're fearful now, Christian, this is what we say. He is with us now in His Spirit and He is coming again. In that we hope. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what Peter does, basically. Essentially. Older sibling pointing out to the youngsters who their faithful Savior is. To suffering Christians probably feeling feeling like they were being crushed by man, right? And you know what happens then. If you ever fear man, you either want to shrink away from engaging or you want to retaliate with what they've just given you, right? You either run away or you kill. You flee or you kill. That's temptation. Both of those things are temptation leading us to sin. But to Christians, probably fearing man, you see he, who he points them to in the rest of our passage? He points them to God's greater glory. Not man's glory. Not Nero. Forget Nero. He is perishable. Look there. In 22 and 23, love one another. Verse 23, since you have been born again. Now here's the contrast. Not of perishable seed. Not of flesh. But of the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Those who just injured you. Those who might be threatening you now. They're just perishable flesh. Versus God, look to God and His imperishable Word. The contrast continues there in 24. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. You see what he says? You see how, friend, if you are struggling even now with the fear of man as you engage the world on mission for Christ, he says, look, yes, you may suffer at the hands of men, but you, you know, no matter how great they may seem, they are perishable. And the breath of the Lord will blow them away. And know that it is God who is great. His promises are eternal. They are everlasting. They are abiding. It is they, the promises that remain. It is His Word that remains forever. And He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. To protect you, preserve you for salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last times. Which is what He said earlier. That is God and His greater glory as revealed in the promises, as fulfilled in the promises of the gospel. Our anchor, what is it in in this life? Our anchor, what anchors our hearts in this life, even in suffering and persecution, is God. 
His power and His faithfulness to fulfill all of His promises in the Gospel. You see the promises here that we just read, they are drawn out of Isaiah chapter 40. You've got to wonder, man, what is Peter meditating on that he draws from Isaiah chapter 40 to feed, right? He knows something about God. He's just going to relay. He's going to be a conduit of God's grace feeding the sheep there who are suffering. What does he know about God? What goes on in Isaiah chapter 40 is that the hope is that the Lord, the Almighty, brings hope in His promise that He one day will bring comfort as He delivers His people from their exile. How fitting in this message that Peter writes to the Christians as God's elect exiles. Did you notice that, that that's what he calls them there in 1-2? And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he calls them sojourners and exiles as they are reviled for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to go to Isaiah. It's basically the middle of the Bible. Just go ahead and open to the middle of your Bible. We'll get to Isaiah. And it's worth looking at here because this is what Peter was meditating on. And he thought it was so important to tell these suffering Christians verses 7 and 8 is our passage there. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Whoa, okay. That's exciting, right? Blows away. God's going to stand forever. Then what? He tells them, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. They were in exile. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. What's God going to do in suffering? What's He going to do when we're in exile? What's what's He going to do when we go from this land to the next land? Look there in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense. Judgment is before Him. What's He going to do furthermore? He's going to tend His flock like a shepherd. And so tenderly, you see here, with compassion, He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's the word of the Lord, He says, that was preached to these Christians. Well, how is that the word of the Lord that was preached to Christians? It was preached to Christians because His promises are fulfilled in Jesus those who are in exile on account of our sins or wandering from this land to the next, He fulfills those things. He exercises compassion towards us in the gospel as He comes to save and lead us and bring us to comfort. That'll put steel in your spine. Thinking of Wolverine, that'll put adamantium in your weak bones. Sure, the reviling that you may experience from man, the bruises and threats you may receive, they may hurt for a while. But we have the gospel. The gospel that we have believed. The gospel that we have received. The gospel that we have clung to. The gospel in which we stand. That is the truth that abides. And just as our Savior was mocked and reviled and beaten and crucified, He did not stay dead. But God raised Him from the grave, faithful to His promises that His Holy One would not see corruption and not a bone of His would be broken. Just as Christ came the first time according to God's promise, so He will come again to establish His throne of justice once and for all. With God, there is comfort, deliverance, and great hope in His return. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. 
In God there is hope. In God there is comfort. In God there is reason to persevere. Look there, chapter 5, verse 6, picking up the themes very much of Psalm 34, which was read for us. Having confidence in who God is. Picking up themes of Isaiah chapter 40. The shepherd who will exalt us. Look there at verse 6. To suffering Christians, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Why is it that we can cast our anxieties upon Him, church? Right? I'm just, I know something about God. I'm just trying to be a conduit, speak His words to you, relay something of Him so that you remember our Father's coming back again. Christ is coming, to be more specific. Humble yourselves. The mighty hand of God. God will return and gather His sheep to His bosom and lead us as His people. And therefore, in the meantime, we can, in fact, cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Christian, as you exercise brotherly love, are you eager to provide both physical resources, but spiritual resources in pointing your brother and sister back to who God is? To conclude here, as we work to a conclusion, I have four practical encouragements that have to do with how we use our words in taking information, knowledge, knowing of God, and relaying it back to our brothers and sisters here. Encouragement one, as we seek to speak words of the gospel to each other, as we work towards ministering Christ to others in deed and word, let's pray. Let's pray. Encouragement number one, pray that the word of God would reverberate in our relationship, right? The word is preached. It's supposed to reverberate in our relationships, constantly resounding and echoing from person to person. Let's pray. But in addition to praying, there are things that we can do day to day to keep the word reverberating. Encouragement number two, as we open up our apartments and our homes to provide for others in the physical, take care to direct the conversation to God and His Word. Take care to direct the conversation to God and His Word. That's encouragement number two. Ask your guests, how has God been encouraging you in the faith recently? And you could even say, I haven't really been encouraged because frankly I've been struggling. How has God been encouraging you? Help me, please. I hope that you guys are reading the Word regularly at home, reading the Word with your families, maybe even memorizing Scripture with your families together, singing Christian songs together at the dinner table, which the young adults got to see Terry's family do. If so, then this would be a natural question to ask. How have you been encouraged by the Word lately? This way, when you get together with fellowship, you can go beyond what happened in the playoffs, beyond Musk and Twitter, beyond, and you go to the most significant stuff of the universe. That is the gospel and how our hearts can be resting in Jesus. Encouragement number three. Encouragement number three. As we aim to speak gospel truths of love to each other, let me encourage you, right after the service, here it is, encouragement three, right after the service, try and talk about what encouraged you from the sermon and service. Try and talk about what encouraged you about the sermon and the service. Resist the discussion about what taco place you're going to go to, what dim sum place you're going to go to, or what omakase place you're going to go to. If you're Mako, 
And if you have good recommendations, hey, I'd like to hear them. But before we get to those things, right, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, make an effort to, again, direct conversation to the Word right after the service and the sermon. Just say, hey, I thought that was such an encouraging service or sermon for this reason. Why'd you think so? Or how were you encouraged? Encouragement number four, the last one. Today even. Review the sermon over lunch. Review the sermon over lunch. Just make that simply a regular practice. And if you've never done it before and you've been coming to the church for decades, that's okay. If you've never done it before, just simply get the awkwardness right out there. I think that's really helpful. Just say, hey, you know, babe, I've never done this before. It's kind of weird but, and awkward, but the pastor encourages us to, so let's go ahead and do this. What did you find was encouraging about the service? What did you find encouraging about the sermon? If you're a teenager, if you're a child, I encourage you, ask your parents that too. You say, what was the outline or what was the main point? What was the outline? And then tell me one thing that encouraged you so that I can be encouraged because frankly, I fell asleep or whatever it is. In this way, we can keep God and his gospel truths at the center of our fellowship with one another. When the church is gathered, when the church is scattered. And in doing so, even in these little ways, in doing so, we move more towards being a safe harbor for each other bringing the much-needed refueling, repair, restocking of supplies with the gospel and its encouragement. And you know what happens? When the tide brings us back here, we are refueled. Then when it brings us back out as we live on mission to Jesus Christ, we can head out again in confidence, loving, even, as Peter's going to get to, our very own persecutors. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you know that we Christians, if we've been Christians for a long time, you know that we have heard this message on Christian love many times. But Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would take the Word, you would continue to teach us more of what you want for us, that you would illumine our minds and our eyes and our hearts that we might behold your glory and the marvels of Christian love. How awesome is it, Lord, that the way in which we love one another, according to John 13, is the way in which people know that we are disciples of Jesus. And so in a very large way, the love we have here within the church is part of your evangelism plan to reach the ends of the earth. Father, we pray that you would enlarge in our hearts so that we might look across the aisle and the seats and know that we are in need of encouragement, that we would actually care and where we might be tempted to come in tired or thinking that uh, our mind, or thinking that we're just going to move on to the next thing today, Lord, we pray that you would help us stop and care for others. Lord Jesus, we know that you did this. You stopped. You humbled yourself. You entered into the world and you took on the same stuff as us. You took on flesh that you might minister to us. So Lord God, we pray that by your Spirit you would make Evergreen a loving people such that the world would know that we are your disciples. In your name we pray, amen.